Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Techspansive. I am Sean Dubrovac from Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Radical Research. Today, we've got a lot of news coming out of uh, Taipei, where they are hosting Computex. If you recall, Computex was uh, canceled due to the pandemic last year. It's being held in a kind of quasi-virtual in-person uh, event this year. And uh, we're seeing a lot of big names show up there, NVIDIA and AMD, both uh, keynoting it, um, AMD making a series of announcements kind of on the, the piggybacking off its announcements it made at CES. And it, and it really feels like, to me, CES has, has done a good job of of garnering the attention of the the chip industry, and then Computex comes a, 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 about six months later uh, as a kind of mid year update and a continuation of are all the chip companies on track with everything they promised at CES? Yeah, Computex has kind of emerged as the heir apparent, I think, in many ways to Comdex, uh, the more PC focused show that was in Las Vegas for many years and one that has migrated closer to what is in many ways uh, the center of uh, a lot of the, the chip production, many of the chip companies uh, in, uh, in Taiwan. Uh, and uh, this year, uh, particularly with NVIDIA and AMD giving the keynotes, it's probably not a big surprise that there was a huge focus on GPUs and accelerated computing and uh, 3D. So. Uh, NVIDIA announcing two new cards that um, update their top of the line uh, in titanium editions. These will go for a premium over the chips that uh, and cards that are already difficult uh, to find. So clearly reaching out to a lot of the enthusiasts there who want to get uh, all the performance they can. One thing that I thought was particularly interesting is that uh, in an effort to make the, uh, these, these cards more available to gamers and designers, uh, NVIDIA is releasing uh, new uh, products that focus exclusively on crypto miners uh, because a lot of these people mining uh, cryptocurrency have been buying their high-end uh, GeForce cards uh, and using them for... <laughs> mining cryptocurrency, and that's one reason why the cards have been difficult uh, to get. So uh, in, in order to encourage the crypto miners to use uh, these different products as opposed to the GeForce products, uh, it has intentionally lowered the performance on the GeForce cards uh, when it comes to crypto mining uh, in order to encourage people to buy the product that they have, uh, that they have aimed specifically toward this purpose. So um, some interesting product dynamics uh, there from uh, NVIDIA. And, uh, and also, uh, you know, a couple of announcements on the, the AI front uh, in the data center uh, and uh, leveraging the power of these chips for doing uh, real-time inspection of, uh, of packets uh, in order to address uh, security threats, uh, NVIDIA coming out and saying firewalls are, are really no longer enough. A lot of the threats to security are coming from within the data center. And so that's why you need to be monitoring uh, these processes in, in real time. 
Uh, that requires a, a lot of horsepower and something that they see uh, as, uh, as an application uh, for their chips. NVIDIA, of course, coming off uh, you know, a, a great quarter uh, where they saw uh, a lot of growth across many of their core uh, lines. And uh, AMD, a uh, couple of announcements, one of which is that they are creating uh, new products uh, for laptops. Uh, we've, again, seen uh, quite a bit of that over the past few months, uh, accelerated 3D, discrete 3D graphics coming into uh, laptops. And, and really the mainstreaming of, of these accelerated laptops is really the story. Uh, you know, in the past, you would have these high-end gaming laptops and, you know, they look like something from Mars, you know, uh, Alienware is, uh, you know, probably the best example. They had all of these, you know, crazy lights and they were super huge and, you know, these gigantic vents uh, in order to accommodate, uh, you know, all the fans that needed to be going in order to cool them down. Uh, and those products are still on the market, but uh, many of the big vendors, uh, HP, Dell, uh, Alienware, are coming out with these laptops that offer significant 3D performance, but just look a lot more mainstream. And they're certainly not going to compete with the thinnest of the thin when it comes to the ultra mobile devices, but there's something that a mainstream user might, might bring into a meeting uh, and not, you know, attract attention uh, in, in terms of, uh, you know, bringing something that from a design perspective uh, looks, uh, you know, really aimed at, uh, at gamers. So those are uh, some of the, the big stories. AMD also announcing a, uh, a collaboration with Samsung uh, to, to build uh, improved uh, 3D performance, uh, including real-time ray tracing, which has... Uh, uh, been a, a long time industry goal and something that uh, NVIDIA has been able to show off with its um, Ampere architecture, the latest generation uh, of, its, um, uh, of, its, uh, of its GeForce line. Uh, and uh, this, this really makes a huge difference in terms of the graphic quality and the realism uh, of, uh, of games. Uh, and, uh, and then on the AI front, uh, I also thought it was interesting for uh, NVIDIA to say that uh, it sees AI really becoming table stakes uh, in the coming years, that you will not be able to compete uh, in the software markets unless your application uh, takes advantage of AI in some meaningful way, uh, just, like was the, just like it was the case for the graphical user interface 30 years ago. So throwing down, I think, a bit of a gauntlet, uh, and of course, uh, promoting a tremendous opportunity uh, for, for itself in, in the coming years. Uh, but, uh, you know, there may be something to it. We're certainly starting to see AI creep into more consumer applications in generally subtle ways. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that will almost certainly grow in the coming years. I think we see two themes really come out of, of Computex this year. And they're both themes that have been building. It's the... Uh, if you will, really the democratization of, of GPUs that that everyone is going to want high-powered GPUs for a variety of different features, whether you're mining for Bitcoin uh, somewhere in the world or whether you're um, you know doing video conferencing. And as I think we go back to a, uh, at least 
for the start, a hybrid environment where people might be in the office, but still trying to figure out how to uh, facilitate video conferences. You, you know, you might see people uh, surrounding a conference table, but all with their laptops open and their, their cameras on. And uh, in, in that environment, you're going to want a laptop that can handle the the uh, processing power necessary to really, uh, you know, process some of the video that we're going to be doing. So I think you're going to see individuals want GPUs. So to your point, Ross, something that doesn't look like a gaming laptop that doesn't weigh as much as a, uh, you know, as a gaming laptop. And I think there's always a little bit of um, a friction here is, is you want the horsepower of a gaming laptop in the, the form factor of a, you know, a 13 inch, notebook and so and, and uh, something that lasts more than an hour on on battery you know, that's, that's right that's also good yeah so i think there's a lot there and then of course the continued spread of of ai showing up in in lots of different places and so you know what we see from from nvidia is opening up a platform to help developers and to help others take advantage of of ai that's going to show up in uh you know a lot of um different places you know, the, the company used the term uh, kind of AI infrastructure. And I see them really trying to, to be a major player in the, the backbone of building out this AI infa, infrastructure. Yeah, also uh, at a, at a Q&A uh, with, uh, with NVIDIA, there were some questions raised about the proposed acquisition of ARM. Um, many of the Many of ARM's customers, uh, Qualcomm for one, has come out uh, opposing the uh, opposing the the acquisition of ARM by NVIDIA, and so just you know, uh, NVIDIA laying out the case, which is that uh, NVIDIA, being a much larger company than ARM, would be able to invest uh, far more in R and D uh, than ARM is uh, is able to do by itself. Um, an argument that the Product lines uh, and business models are complementary, and that ARM does CPUs, whereas NVIDIA really focuses more on GPUs and and data processing units. Uh, and uh, you know, just just laying out what the regulatory uh, review process is going to look like over, over the next year. Uh, so um, uh, we'll certainly see a, a lot a lot of arguments uh, made in what could be a landscape uh, shifting acquisition um, that uh, that Nvidia has proposed and that uh, arm um, uh, arm is in favor of this week we also got other chip related news out of Arizona where uh, Taiwan semiconductor TSMC has started construction on an Arizona facility there uh, have commitments to invest about 12 billion dollars there to help build out needed capacity, as we have all seen by all the headlines of chip shortages, needed capacity there for, uh, for chip production. Uh, they have plans to build as many as six factories, really co- committing to this uh, region over the next you know, 10 to 15 years. These are, are obviously major capital investments that have long lives. Uh, they will be producing five nanometer production technology there in in Arizona and and production should start around 2024 so while they've started construction it will still be several years until we we see that pick up uh, at the same time they'll be using five nanometer 
production technology in Arizona, they continue to expand their three nanometer uh, production capabilities in, in uh, Taiwan. So uh, hopefully some of that will eventually work its way to, uh, to Arizona as well. In our second story that we wanted to cover today, we see that uh, Twitter is uh, launching a new service called Tomorrow. It's a weather news service. They're kind of taking advantage of all of these new features that they have um, added or, or at least introduced in recent months. They'll be partnering with a uh, climate journalist who is building out a staff of, of climate journalists. They'll be using their uh, paid newsletter services, their essentially paid audio services that, uh, that they'll be launching with uh, ticketed capabilities. And um, it, by all appearances, it looks like Twitter continues to, to build out their uh, media empire or try to take advantage of their platform to build out uh, you know, what looks like a, a media company. Yeah, I uh, I think in one sense they're taking a page from uh, Substack in trying to jumpstart this new revenue stream by attracting people to publish and interact uh, on their platform. But it's uh, it's you know I have to give them a little bit of credit. They're they're going a step beyond that in really trying to encourage the development of these collectives of uh, of contributors. Um, so uh, so Twitter has um, has portrayed it as uh, as really being able to take advantage of uh, people who are passionate uh, and you know they they made the analogy of uh, of getting people together to form a band uh, and uh, you know trying to find related experts uh, in in a field uh, in the case of this weather experiment. Uh, it's again not surprising that they're going for people with more of a local uh, focus. Um, you know, we we may not think about the weather as anything uh, super exciting, but but it's a huge driver, uh, traffic driver for Twitter and uh, and the uh, you know the the climate expert that they're uh, working with talked about how his own Twitter following uh, ballooned from five thousand followers to about one hundred fifty thousand followers. Uh, during um, you know some of the the hurricane news over the past few years, so uh, an interesting mix of bringing together of the review newsletter platform of the Spaces Q and A platform and trying to parlay that into a, uh, a paid uh, subscription service. Um, it'll be it it also I think raises questions of this uh, rumored blue subscription service that, that we've heard of. Will it, uh, for example, bundle together some of these premium collectives, uh, if you will, and, and provide uh, uh, access to them? So, uh, you know, whereas Substack, I, I think, has really very much been about, the contrast I would make is that Substack has been very much around individual celebrities uh, or, you know, people with, with substantial followings and, uh, and, and, and really being kind of hands-off uh, in terms of helping to market uh, those, um, those newsletters. Twitter, it seems, is going to take a more active role, which I think is very attractive if you are uh, someone considering what kind of uh, platform you want to host your community on. 
and uh, however, these uh, these collectives, I think, are an interesting play. Uh, if you're going to make the comparison to a bunch of people coming together and forming a band, uh, well, you know, we all know that a lot of bands break up uh, because there are personality clashes and and ego, um, you know, ego battles that that take place. So. Um, you know, we'll, we'll have to see how well that works, but, but the reasoning is uh, here, here's a way for us to bring in lots of talent and passion uh, as opposed to having a number of, say, newsletter publishers publishing about a similar issue and competing with each other for a fixed number of subscription dollars. It almost feels like the the uh, mid century, uh, you know, uh, the guilds or guilds, right? <laughs> I mean, it kind of feels like the the guilds. And and to your point, um, in, in today's world where we break off and create our own revenue stream, if we can build a sustainable revenue stream, you can easily imagine people coming to something like tomorrow or whatever the next iteration of this is building up a, a following and then and then leaving for Substack or leaving for you know some other um, individualized revenue stream uh, I, I can't help but wonder what is the market really for for localized weather information are we really willing to pay ten dollars a month for for weather information uh, I, I know I'm not uh, the weather app is more than sufficient <laughs> for me I can see the weather in my own area by hour and I can get it for everywhere else. I can ask, you know, uh, Amazon or Google through any of the voice agents I've got distributed around my home, what the weather is. And, and I've noticed recently that they'll start to give me weather in, you know, minute increments. So they'll Mm. tell me it's going to rain in three minutes or, or something like that. Now, maybe it's not perfectly accurate, but, um, it's certainly more convenient than going and digesting a lot of information on a, on a paid service. So I uh, hope that this proves the use case, but, but um, this particular uh, use case might not be, might, might not be viable over the long run. And, and I think that's part of why they have this climate hook uh, to it. Uh, you know, like I think a lot of these uh, specialized content initiatives a lot of it is going to appeal early on to professionals. So if you work in agriculture or some other field where, you know, the weather is a huge driver of, uh, of your business, then uh, it, it's probably a more realistic thing to, uh, to subscribe to. Yeah, but are those people on Twitter or is it the idea that we bring those people to Twitter because it's got this service that they're not able to get now from the Weather Channel or from some other uh, service? Well, I think I think the interactivity uh, is a potential huge draw there, uh, and and again another differentiator from Substack, where I mean there is some audience participation in terms of commenting uh, on uh, on issues, uh, but uh, you know nothing compared to the potential live Q and A that uh, that that creators here uh, would be able to offer. And also, Sean, I, I think you. Uh, raise another good point, which is that on Substack, uh, the publisher, you know, the, the personality, if you will, owns the subscriber list, owns the billing relationship. Uh, and so there really is nothing preventing them from deciding that they want to switch to review or host their own service as 
you know, a couple of their high profile uh, folks have done. Whereas I think that would be much harder on Twitter for two reasons. One, uh, if Twitter is actively promoting you, as I mentioned before, you know, that's, that's huge, uh, huge benefit. Uh, and uh, the other thing is because of the unique mix of services that they're looking to, to bring together, not only in terms of multiple media support, the newsletter, the, the spaces, Q&A opportunity, uh, other things, but the way they might cross-promote you uh, with, uh, with other offerings that they're potentially bundling into uh, a more comprehensive subscription package. So, uh, you know, assuming they can gain traction with it, uh, the, these, these services should be much stickier uh, in terms of retaining the, uh, the personalities than, you know, at, le at least what Substack offers on paper so to speak. <laughs> it's definitely becoming a very crowded platform. It, you know, it feels like there's a lot happening on Twitter, that they're, that they're moving in lots of different directions. Uh, when you think about fleets or, you know, the, their audio um, options that they're, they're building out. So there's, uh, I think the risk that they're going to move their core users in lots of different directions, and then you lose some of the network effects that actually make Twitter... Mm -hmm. Uh, valuable. I know since the demise of Nuzzle, I've actually find myself using Twitter less because it was a nice aggregation tool to surface what uh, what people were reading based upon people I followed or, or other lists that I had created. So it will be interesting to see how they bring back some of those features and how they how they monetize that. Uh, in, in other kind of related news, Spotify is uh, launching a new feature called Only You, which uh, takes advantage of your information and your behavior, your your use history to provide a essentially shareable story-driven um, experience where you can get recommendations. I mean, to me, this is ultimately about discovery. So they will uh, highlight a, an artist that will match up to your listening history. Maybe it's an artist that you're aware of. Maybe it's not. And uh, you can um, learn more about your listening habits and discover new, uh, new options. Uh, Spotify had been doing this in, in a similar way on an annual basis, giving you a glimpse of what you had looked at. And the idea is that this is probably going to become a much more frequent uh, experience. They also introduced a new playlist feature called Blended Mixes, which will allow you to mix your musical tastes with a friend. Again, I think this is a, a way of discovering new new music where some overlap exists. It's you know it's essentially the Venn diagram if or or the Netflix algorithm. If my friend likes this music and and I like it too, then maybe we have other bands that uh, that we would enjoy in common and we're not aware of those yet and uh you know do i have the the ability to delete songs that my friend has uh suggested if uh if i don't like their their taste in music yeah it's, uh, a, you, it's a quick way of ruining the algorithm right if you start to get all <laughs> these recommendations for bands you don't want to listen to this idea of discovery uh is as old as uh digital music pretty much uh, i remember talking about this uh, in in you know the late '90s with with the rise of Napster uh, and uh, and iTunes and um, you know th this idea that music going digital 
And while you may have been, at least for the music industry, while you may have been losing revenue from uh, CD sales, uh, you were going to make it up by uh, having people discover so many artists. Uh, and uh, certainly it's something that Spotify has uh, been very aggressive about, uh, again, uh, for, for at least a, a decade, maybe two. Uh, and so, um, you know, I, I think it, it remains a challenge, uh, particularly for people who are out of their prime music discovery uh, age, which tends to be, I think, the teens and, and the 20s. You know, once people get into their 30s and 40s, they, uh, you know, it becomes much more difficult for them to discover new music. So uh, I'm, I'm keener on this, uh, more keen on, on this blended playlist uh, idea than just sort of, you know, here, here's your year in music, but we're going to give it to you on a, on a weekly basis uh, or, or whatever. Um, you know, I, th I think that might be interesting uh, in, in sort of the old um, quantitative life sense, right? When uh, people were getting obsessed with, you know, measuring their steps and, you know, a whole bunch of other things about um, what, what they were doing. Uh, but, uh, but in terms of the, the um, you know, the, this music discovery, it's, uh, uh, you know, the, the idea that I'm discovering this from uh, someone I, uh, you know, I know and trust. And then, you know, the idea that I could share that playlist with other people uh, in our circle of friends uh, is also interesting. So I think it'll be interesting to see you know, if this gains any momentum, what Spotify does with it and how it expands it. Uh, to me, it's clear they're trying to keep people on the platform. So Ross, when you talk about the stale playlists, I feel like you're referring to me, one of the older <laughs> Spotify listeners, you know, and there's only so, so much you can listen to Notorious B.I.G. and Taylor Swift and <laughs> until you need some new recommendations. So this is an idea of, of getting new recommendations. I think where this could be extremely powerful, especially for Spotify, is on the podcast side. Mm -hmm. Might it recommend new podcasts that, uh, that listeners would, would enjoy listening to? I think that has a lot of promise, and that's an area they've tried to build out. Um, and I think that the music recommendation and the blended uh, playlists is all about building in more social features that will keep people on the platform longer and helps them stay in front of all of the other music services that are, that are trying to garner, uh, you know, garner attention and time of, of users. In our final story of the week, Huawei has announced yet another new uh, operating system. They've got their Harmony OS, which arrived on tablets and their new Mate Pad Pro uh, this week. It's also showing up on their uh, smartwatch. Huawei's Watch Three will uh, will have it. If you recall, their watch th their watch originally ran on Google's Android Wear, which is now, of course, just Wear. They uh, followed that up with what they called Light OS. And uh, now they're replacing it with uh, Harmony OS, which will also show up on their, their phones and their tablets. Well, you know, th this is something where Huawei said that they were planning for this kind of eventuality for many years. And uh, certainly once the government ban kicked in, uh, preventing them from 
gaining access to uh, Google's uh, services outside of China, uh, they, they really had no choice uh, but to uh, develop their own. There really wasn't anything else commercially out there that they could really use. And uh, the contrast I see here is that uh, from all of the early looks at this operating system when it was in development, it is essentially Android at its, at its core. Uh, the uh, so-called AOSP, Android Open Source Platform with uh, Huawei filling in a lot of the gaps for uh, Google services not entirely unlike what Amazon does with uh, Fire OS, which uh, again is Android at the core, uh, but with Amazon swapping in uh, a whole bunch of its own services in place of the Google services. So, you know, that, that's a, a good thing uh, in terms of encouraging development. People will probably be uh, on uh, familiar ground if, if they have developed for Android before. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Huawei has portrayed Harmony OS as kind of this almost meta operating system that lives above the devices and allows more seamless interaction among them than potentially anything you know we, we've seen before. Uh, Apple's family of operating systems, Mac OS, iOS, Watch OS, TV OS, uh, probably the, the closest thing we've seen uh, to that uh, up to this point. Uh, but they are all, of course, highly optimized for the devices that they, that they live on. So, you know, it's, it's certainly going to be a challenge uh, for Huawei. And uh, I, I think it was also interesting as part of the announcement that they talked about all of these older devices that they're going to bring Harmony OS to. Uh, that could be a response to customers of those devices being unsatisfied with whatever uh, compromised, uh, and I mean in terms of capability, not security, uh, products that, uh, that they've you know, had, to, had to deal with, or it may be providing those, um, those customers with a, uh, uh, with, with a path forward, uh, given that you know, this is how Huawei sees its, its future development. Um, so uh, it, it'll be interesting to watch, uh, certainly more serious issues clouding the company's uh, device business. Uh, for example, it announced uh, a new phone in its, uh, in, its, in its imaging focused product line, the P series. Uh, so, so a new generation of that, uh, the P50, and yet couldn't commit to when they might ship it uh, because they're also facing a lot of pressure in terms of uh, access to, to silicon. Uh, so uh, if they can get those issues worked out, uh, then, uh, then, then it's still going to be uh, an, uh, an uphill battle um, uh, because it's, it's, it's very difficult. You know, it has actually less to do with the capabilities of the operating system and a lot more to do with how well you can run a, a developer program. Uh, and, uh, you know, what we saw from Microsoft, for example, uh, is that, you know, is, as experienced as that company was in managing developer programs and, you know, nurturing uh, an ecosystem in Windows, just couldn't, couldn't make it happen uh, on, uh, on the phone. And uh, in Amazon's case, uh, you know, it, it's, it's kind of more like a Nintendo model where 
you know, we're producing the device, we're supporting it with software. And if other, you know, and, that, and that's really going to be the main reason people buy it. Uh, and if other people come along, third parties come along, that's great. Uh, but we know we're never going to be able to compete with uh, Microsoft and Sony in terms of breadth of developer support. So, um, you know, so, so we're, we're just going to accept that and, and rely on our own uh, content and services. And, uh, and I think that that's kind of the model that, uh, that Huawei is, is, is looking at now. I think if it's just Huawei, then developing this uh, alternative operating system is is tough. And and your example of Microsoft is spot on. What could help is if there are other companies that end up on U.S. blacklists that then need an operating system. And if this fills that void and they can build up a critical mass, you could easily have a operating system that ends up getting 40, maybe 50 percent of the of the global market. You've got companies like Xiaomi that have 14% of the market, uh, Oppo at, at 10, Vivo at 10, uh, you know, and you've got Huawei in there. So you, just with those three that I mentioned, you've got the third, fourth, and fifth largest phone manufacturers in, in the U.S. If they could be incentivized to adopt this operating system over Android, then you're quickly to critical mass and developers would, would have to pay attention to it. Uh, to your point, it's, it still needs to be a, uh, a strong developer community and, and strong support for that. Uh, but I think there's an opportunity to build an operating system that um, really speaks to the, the Chinese market more broadly, the, the global market where maybe Android hasn't um, you know, been successful. Certainly, there have been some limitations put on Android in these markets. So uh, it, it is a an, another hurdle that Huawei will have to uh, to overcome. But there is some potential there if they could get this more more widely adopted. I, I think that's going to be tough. the The line in the sand has really been: Are you a cellular infrastructure company? You know, that's that's really where all the concerns about Huawei stem from. If Huawei were just another smartphone maker, I don't think it would be looking at these kinds of uh, issues. Uh, but it's, it's really from the uh, cellular infrastructure side, the 5G infrastructure side, uh, that is what has uh, really attracted uh, all, all of the attention from, from the government. And while Xiaomi uh, briefly was on the, the blacklist, uh, it and you know by the way, Xiaomi, at least at this point, despite talking about it for years, is not really active uh, in the U.S. market as as a handset maker. You know they have a couple of minor accessory things. Uh, then, um, uh, but 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 Xiaomi was was removed uh, from the blacklist after protesting, and uh, you know there are many uh, or uh, certainly a number of Chinese companies uh, selling smartphones uh, in the U.S. without. Any any apparent issue, uh, Lenovo, which owns the uh, the Motorola brand, uh, OnePlus, uh, which uh, saw its U.S. share grow uh, significantly over the past year and has been um, one of the real featured uh, handset partners at uh, T-Mobile, uh, TCL, uh, which for years made the Alcatel uh, and uh, BlackBerry brands, uh, and now is making a stronger push uh, under its own brand. 
uh, and of course is uh, you know is, is also a leading TV brand uh, here in the U.S. So you know th those are just some examples, um, but uh, but unfortunately for Huawei, uh, you know it's 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 smartphone business um, uh, really really suffers uh, because of of the infrastructure side to the point where they already had to sell off uh, its direct to consumer brand Honor. Uh, and, uh, you know, but, but the company says it refuses to essentially split off its handset uh, company. And as long as that is the case, uh, unfortunately, it's, um, it's going to be very tough uh, um, in, in terms of, um, you know, gain, gaining access to uh, American IP. Yeah, and I, and I don't see this as a play for the U.S. market, but I think there's a, a much you know, or an equally sized market outside of the U.S., certainly within China, that is still up for grabs, if you will. And um, if Huawei could gain traction there, then there's a opportunity. To your point, though, Ross, I definitely agree that it is an uphill battle and will be very difficult for, for Huawei, um, especially since this isn't where, you know, their, their legacy sits. So if they were a software developer coming out with a new operating system that, uh, that really spoke to the needs of the Chinese consumer, then, then maybe I think there's a stronger chance. But also it isn't just about smartphones, it's about other devices. And I think that's sure. part of why uh, Huawei launched it on multiple different devices at the same time to highlight that this is a, a universal uh, operating system to your point, similar to, to what Android has been able to do as well. Uh, with that, that's probably a great place to wrap up this week's episode of Techspansive. Thanks again for joining us for episode 101. I am uh, Sean Dubrovac. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Dubrovac. And you can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>